I show in that talk uh, how my favorite algorithm, outer product, is basically just a composition of Cartesian product and chunk, the view that we just mentioned. Welcome to ADSP, the podcast, episode 91, recorded on August 9th, 2022. My name is Connor, and today with my co-host Bryce, we continue part two of our two-part conversation on what to look forward to in C++23. But we'll start with Zip. So I'm trying to get back to them. So Zip is, the first time I came across Zip was in Python. And basically what Zip does is it takes two equal length sequences or ranges and combines them so that you get a single sequence of tuples. And you can actually take an arbitrary number of sequences. So the most common, I think, is two of them. Um, but you can take an arbitrary number. If you want to take five, it'll return you a five tuple back, a sequence of five tuples. So very nice. Zip transform is um, more commonly known as just map in other languages. In Haskell, it's known as zip width. We called it transform because in C++, uh, we use map, we use transform as our mapping algorithm name. And it basically takes an arbitrary number of equal length sequences and then a function that has the arity equal to the number of sequences you take. So the simplest example is you take two sequences and a binary function. So for example, uh, two sequences and the std colon colon plus or a lambda that adds two numbers together. It can be any binary function. Binary here meaning a function that takes two arguments. You know, it doesn't actually need to be a function. It can be something else, just as long as it's invocable or callable. And it returns you a single sequence. And instead of tupling up those elements, element-wise, it basically applies the binary function or the n array function to your n sequences. And so you end up with a sequence of whatever the return object of that binary function is. Um, so technically, you can think of zip as a specialization of zip transform, where the uh, n array function is make tuple, uh, is a kind of easy way to think about that. How about the chunk algorithms? Uh, first, let's do adjacent and adjacent transform because okay. those right. are next right. to zip. So adjacent is basically a function that is a not I don't think specialization. It's definitely not a specialization of zip and zip transform, but they're sort of like uh, sibling algorithms. It takes two adjacent elements and tuples them together. Uh, so you can think of this as similar to adjacent difference or adjacent find. Both of those algorithms are looking at adjacent elements. This is basically just uh, making tuples out of them. Adjacent transform is the exact same idea. It's a stenciling operator. It gives you sort of a stencil. Correct, yes. In the in a lot of the mathematical or HPC world, this is known as either tiling or stenciling. Now, what if I wanted three adjacent elements? Can I do that with uh, with the adjacent view? Uh, yes. So actually, in the example... And it's actually sad that I don't know this off the top of my head. I think we ended up calling... So adjacent actually doesn't just look at two. You specify the number of elements you want to look at. And we have a specialization for the one that takes two. And it looks like we called it pairwise. Let me just confirm that because that kind of makes me sad. <laughs> it's not on CPP reference yet. Yeah, I was going to say it's not on the CPP reference compiler support page. But... Psy has an example that says std colon colon views colon colon pairwise. I'm... Wonder if this compiles. Is there is there gobble links in here? There's not gobble links in here. 
Is there a Gobble link at the bottom? Although potentially, Psy works at Microsoft, correct? Right. So Psy might be using an internal version of uh, MSVC that has this stuff implemented because uh, MSVC is leading the uh, charge on implementing these. So I think, yeah, I will come back and edit this as if I'm incorrect. But yeah, pairwise, I think, is the specialization that takes two at a time. And the transform version of adjacent, so adjacent transform does the same thing as zip transform. It takes n elements and an n arity invocable or callable thing and then applies that to the elements. Uh, and I'll speed up here. Chunk and chunk by. So chunk takes a range or a sequence and uh, integer value and basically creates a range of ranges where each of those ranges is takes n elements at a time. So for instance, if you have an iota sequence of 1 to 10, and you go chunk five, it'll give you a range of two ranges from one to five and six to 10. And chunk by is actually a little bit difficult to explain. It's very easy to show though. It basically does the same kind of chunking behavior. So these are what are known as anamorphic algorithms. You start with a sequence and then you end up with a sequence of sequences or something like that. And chunk by basically takes a binary operation, an invocable thing that takes two arguments and creates a new sequence anytime the binary operation, technically it's a binary predicate, so it returns true or false, uh, turns, uh, returns false. So the easiest example, or one of the easiest examples, is if you go 111-222-333, and you call chunk by on that sequence with a std colon colon equal to binary operation. That'll then give you a range of three ranges where the subranges are equal to 111, in the first one, two to two in the second one, and three through three in the in the third one. Or I think perhaps a more intuitive one is if you have a function that tells you when you're at the end of a word, and then you run it over a string, it will give you all of the the words in the string. Right. So, and what would the binary operation for that be? Um. So that that's a little bit tricky because I was. Like you, you could use the one where you just check whether the left character is non-white space, the right character is white space, but then you wouldn't actually get the words because you would you would then get uh, like the first word would just be the word, but then the second word would have the white space before it, um, and also that doesn't handle things like punctuation. Um, so, right. but I just sort of meant like intuitively, <laughs> if you right. have like a very simple simple string. Um, I want you to spell it out. Character by character, Bryce. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. Just kidding. <laughs> I mean, if you really wanted to get just the words, what you could do is um, you could do that simple function of like, is the left character uh, non-white space? Is the right character uh, white space? And then the results of that uh, adjacent, you could pipe into a um, a trim that goes through each one of the subsequences and trims out the white space characters, and then you would get um, a, a range that is. A range of the range of words in your string. Yeah. And uh, these algorithms are super common in sort of functional languages. So uh, I believe Haskell calls chunk by group by. And the specialization that uses the binary operation uh, where it's equal to stood colon colon equal to or a lambda that's just checking if two things are equal is called group. But a variety of language. I know D calls this chunk by. That's actually where we got the name from it. Um, we got the name from. We borrowed it from the D language. Although there's a couple other languages that also call it this. And I think actually I gave... I actually don't know if it was covered in that talk. I gave a CPPCon lightning talk at some point called 
chunk, slide, and stride, I believe. And it was sort of talking about these views and how they're very similar to each other. Slide is another one that basically you can think of as a chunk, but instead of stepping by the number, the, the size of your chunk, you're stepping by one. So chunk, if you specify in the example where I did one to de- 10 and you chunk by five and you end up with two chunks, that is basically chunking by five and then stepping your start of your next chunk by five. But slide only steps by one. So if you did one to 10, chunk five, you'd get one to five, two to six, three to seven, et cetera, until you got to the end. And so slide is, an, I think of in another way, is sort of a stenciling operation. Yep. Yeah. Actually, what, what, what is the relation between slide and adjacent? Uh, I want to say adjacent has a compile time, a compile time slice length or window length, whereas slide, slide is runtime. Run Interesting. I could actually be wrong about that. I mean, Barry Revzin is the one that did all the heavy lifting on this stuff, and I recall initially asking the exact same question. I was like, why do we need two different versions of these? And then the response was, well, you know, a lot of the times you actually know the stencil or window length at compile time, and that leads to a completely different performance profile and algorithm implementation. So um, that's that's a great question that I also think about it. If it's, if it's, if you know it at compile time, you can just, you know, pass a tuple or a pair. Um, Right. uh, Whereas if it's at runtime, then it really, you have to pass a range and then you have to iterate through the range. Right. And I think that's uh, the, that's the, the key difference as well. Like uh, adjacent returns you a back a tuple, whereas uh, slide. So uh, adjacent returns you back a range of tuples, whereas slide returns you back a range of ranges, which sounds like maybe a small difference, but when it comes to actually chaining up a bunch of these views so that you get some kind of, you know, algorithm, uh, having a tuple versus having a range in your range is going to affect very significantly what your what the next pipeable thing you do can do. Um, because if you want to get the last element or the first element, having a, a tuple or a, a range is obviously it's going to be less or more ergonomic depending on what you're doing. Um, yeah. So one of the other um, uh, range views, which uh, was a paper that Sai originally wrote, but then some folks at NVIDIA in particular, my colleague Mihao, uh, finished and got into C++23 is uh, the Cartesian product view, um, which is a range adapter that takes multiple input ranges, and it produces a range of all of the ordered tuples formed by taking an element from each one of the inputs. Um, so this one is near and dear to my heart because it's very useful for constructing um, uh, uh, ranges that iterate through a multi-dimensional index space. Um, so like if you take a Cartesian product of two iota views, um, an iota view from zero to n and an iota view from zero to m, um, that Cartesian product of those two views will give you back um, uh, a range of two element tuples from zero zero to n minus one m minus one yep it's very nice um cartesian product is awesome to have and if you watched the talk that i mentioned in the last episode or two episodes ago that i said was live streaming in 27 minutes i show in that talk uh, how my favorite algorithm outer product is basically just a composition of Cartesian product and chunk, the view that we just mentioned. Uh, because our, our 
outer product is basically just a structured Cartesian product that if you're given two sequences with length N and M, it'll create basically a matrix or a range of ranges uh, with lengths N and M. And so you can basically just call Cartesian product, then views transform and std apply whatever uh, binary operation you want to that sequence. And then you just call chunk with the either N or M and you're good to go, which is very, very nice. Maybe we'll get outer product. Probably not. There's three other, I think, um, or two other views worth mentioning. Um, stride and repeat. Stride kind of completes the set of chunk and slide where um, chunk is windowing size of N, step size of N. Slide is windowing size of N, step size of 1. And stride is windowing size of 1, step size of N. In other words, in some languages, this is called every nth. So if you specify a uh, stride of four, it just looks at every fourth element, um, which can be very useful if you're trying to skip over certain things. Um, and repeat, I don't think um, need to sort of say you what that is. You should explain it. Uh, don't okay, make I will. assumptions. Actually, repeat was not one. I wonder if repeat and cycle, let's look at the paper. Um, because so there's there's two possible things that I actually don't know which one this does. Does it repeat infinitely? Or do you specify that you want to repeat something n number of times? Because if you have cycle, repeating infinitely is basically just a special case of cycle where you only have one element. Cycle is um, a view where if you have the elements 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and you want to so repeat that view, sequence infinitely. Views repeat uh, will we'll repeat it either infinitely or a specified number of times. Oh. But do, do you know why repeat is in C++ 23? Mm, I mean, you, Michal you, wrote the proposal. and Right, I, but you are actually responsible for it. Oh, is it because of that one problem that we were solving yes. where you had to normalize a list of numbers? It and then was. you were like, what's the way to do it? And I was like, oh, well, you just do this with a fork in APL. I think we literally, we solved this live it, on one yes. of our episodes. We, we did. So, so the problem was, um, how do you do a, um, uh, like, you want to normalize a vector. So you want to go and find the um the smallest element of a vector so like a min element and then you want to divide every element of the vector by that minimum element and i like this example because it's an example of um a problem that doesn't neatly fit into the piping syntax because you've got an input sequence to that min element and then the min element produces you know a scalar value and then you want to feed the input sequence and that scalar value into the next thing in your pipeline, the transform. Um, and so I often use this as an example of, uh, you know, where uh, the piping syntax breaks down because you're not just passing the same, you know, single input sequence between stages of the pipeline. And I showed this to Connor and Connor was like, oh, well, you know, you should just be using, using repeat here. Um, uh, and uh, I don't remember the exact details of, of, of the example that you came up with, but I saw well, that. Well, so the, the solution is if you use a, uh, basically a zip transform that we have in C++23, and you think of it as once you've calculated the minimum, uh, instead of capturing that minimum in a lambda and then calling a views transform over your initial sequence, 
and then basically dividing those each of those elements by the minimum. You could alternatively do zip transform, where your two sequences or ranges are your initial range, and then views repeat of the minimum. And then yeah. you, your binary operation is uh, divide. And that falls out of a sort of APL ar array language solution where you'd solve this with a, a monadic fork or a, what's known as a phi combinator in combinatory logic. So Connor showed me this, and I was like, huh. And then I took a little bit more of a look at repeat, and I was like, you know, we have all these fancy iterators in uh, the yep. Thrust library, which is our parallel algorithms library that inspired the C++ 17 parallel algorithms, but also predates them and predates ranges. And so it had to introduce some of its own fancy iterators. Um, and do you know which fancy iterator in Thrust repeat corresponds well, to? You're asking this question, and literally uh, one second before I stopped talking, I was like, oh, I should also mention that. But then you started talking. I was like, oh, I'll wait for Bryce to finish. But like, so the next thing I was going to say was that this also corresponds to if you use the boost fancy iterator thrust, the constant iterator. Yes. Um, and so I saw that and I was like, huh. And I looked through the rest of the thrust fancy iterators and I'm like, well, we have, we have views transform. We have zip. It seems like the only one that's missing is... Views iota as well? Yeah, views iota as well seems like the only thrust fancy iterator that does not have a corresponding counterpart in um, in ranges is repeat. And so so after that I was like, well, that's interesting because we have a lot of thrust users that are asking me um, how do I use the thrust fancy iterators with the C++ um, uh, uh, parallel algorithms? And I tell them, well, you could just include them and use them. But I was like, well, what if they didn't need to? What if I could just tell them to use C++20 ranges? Um, because all we now have mm -hmm. range views that correspond to all of the um, uh, thrust fancy iterators. And then I started looking into that. And as it turned out, there were some bugs in the, in the specification that prevented you from passing the range view iterators into the parallel algorithms. And so then... I talked to my colleague, David Olson, and I'm like, hey, can you fix this? And he wrote a paper to fix that. And then I was like, you know what? And then we need repeat. And so I talked to my colleague, Michal Dominic, and I said, hey, can you write this paper for repeat and also for Cartesian product? And he did that. And, and that's why we have those things in C++23. And now in C++23, you can completely replace any of your, uh, your, your thrust uh, algorithm plus thrust fancy iterator usage with just completely standard code. Yep. And to go through the list, well, I'm, I'm looking at the... Uh... And so if, if, people, if people are wondering like what it is that I actually do at NVIDIA, that's what <laughs> I do at NVIDIA. <laughs> well, to be fair, the thrust fancy iterators were completely borrowed from the boost fancy iterators. Yes, yeah. And if we go through those, I'll skip a few that are sort of more esoteric, but uh, zip iterator corresponds to view zip. Uh, transform iterator corresponds to views transform. Reverse iterator corresponds to views reverse. Filter iterator, didn't even actually know that one existed because I don't think that exists in Thrust, um, corresponds to views filter. And counting iterator uh, corresponds to views iota. Yeah. And uh, that's pretty, yeah, it's pretty awesome. These things are, at first, you'd think that they're not super... Like the utility of them, you're like, ah, how often would I reach for this? But once you start to reach for them, you start to notice that they are like the and that constant iterator. 
for some reason isn't actually in the specialized adapters list, but I know it is a part of this library and that that's what corresponds to views repeat. Um, they are very, very useful utilities. Um, there, there is one that I believe we don't have a counterpart for. Um, and I don't know whether boost iterators have it, the discard iterator in Thrust. Uh, have you ever that used does that exist one? in Thrust. That does exist. Yeah. In, I know of it. Um, I've never personally used it, but I've seen it in code reviews uh, in Rapids so, where it basically so, yeets it, right? Yeah, so the discard iterator is an iterator that, that you can you know, write to, and it just does nothing. So if you, have an, if you want to call an algorithm, but you don't care about the output, then you'd call the discard, you'd use the discard iterator. Yeah, it's, uh, it's useful. It's very useful in certain situations where it's exactly what you need. Yeah. Um, I can't think of an example off the top of my head. It definitely, I'm, tr I'm not going to remember it, but I definitely know if you search in the Rapids libqdf code base, almost definitely you're going to find a, an example of it. Speaking yeah. of all of this stuff, I feel bad not having Barry on. Um, we should have, after we have Kate on, Barry on to talk about, this isn't even, I mean, I'm not sure if he's going to be upset that I'm mentioning it. It's going to become a paper at some point. He's got a pipeline 2.0 um, paper yeah. in the works. That and I'm really uh, about. that is something I've really been spending. I just earlier today was spending some time uh, looking at the Julia language, and yeah, the Julia has Julia has a pipeline operator, but it only works on unary functions. And if you want to it to work on binary functions, uh, you have to in, you have to use a macro called at pipe, and then it also introduces a placeholder, or the underbar, where you specify where it goes. And in this 2.0 paper, I mean, he talks about it in his initial paper as well. He talks about the, um, I mean, version one of his initial paper didn't have the placeholder. Version two does, and then ver his 2.0 ver. So there's R1 and R2 of his first pipeline paper, and he's working on 2.0. So it's not a revised R version. It's a whole new paper with. It's going to have a whole new paper number, and. I think it's incredibly important that we choose the right model because I am really leaning towards these days the placeholder model because it alt it really kind of almost replaces the need for the kind of combinator things that I love like when when you want to fork some like you know the output of a operation into two different places you can do that with the placeholder and a great example of this is um, zip width like even when you don't want to pipe it into multiple places, but zip width, because it is variadic in the number of sequences it can take, the variadic ar argument goes last. And that means that the first argument to zip width, or sorry, zip transform is what we call it. Zip width, zip width is the Haskell name. Uh, the first argument to that uh, view is actually the invocable or callable thing with arity equal to the number of se variadic sequences you're taking, um, which means that you can't actually use it with the pipe operator, because the way the pipe operator works with views is it pipes it into the first argument of your view. So if it's if you don't if you can't design a view that is for some reason variadic, such as zip or uh, I think adjacent might be the same way. I haven't used that yet. Um, you're not going to be able to use it with the pipeline operator, or sorry, the pipe operator. So having a placeholder, anyways, I'm rambling, but the point is we should bring Barry on, talk about all the different trade offs, because I I. I really want to get this right in C plus. Yeah, we, we should have Baron. I think, and yeah, and I, I'm I'm very excited by that proposal. Um, I have found an example. Uh, there's only one example in the thrust examples of uh, a usage of discard iterator. It is the discard iterator is used extensively in the thrust tests, unsurprisingly, 
Um, and I believe one of the main use cases there is to make sure that things don't modify the input. Um, so to, to run a test with a big data set where there's just an input. Um, but uh, there's an, a thrust example where it wants to do a, um, a set uh, intersection um, and then store the, the resulting set. And if you do this, you have to allocate storage for the output. Um, now you could conservatively allocate storage. Um, you know, the, the maximum size of the of the intersection would be the size of uh, of the first set plus the size of the second set. If there's nothing in them that, uh, uh, or so sorry that that this is an intersection, not a union. So I I don't know what the what the maximum uh, uh, size would be. I guess no. I guess the maximum size would be the size of the largest set, right? If you have two sets that inter that intersect, the maximum possible answer is the is the maximum of the 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 two. Correct. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If they're completely uh, uh, mutually exclusive in yeah. their yeah. elements, it'll be just the the length of both added but, together. But that might allocate more storage than you need. So alternatively, what you can do is you could compute the output size by outputting to a discard iterator. So set intersection, the algorithm takes, you know, the range of the input uh, sets, so two ranges, and then it takes an output iterator to write to. Um, and it returns um, uh, the, uh, uh, the end of where it wrote to. Um, and discard iterators, while it doesn't, you know, store anything, it does keep track of how many times it's been incremented. So if you call set intersection with um, your two input sets, and then with the discard iterator for the output set, set intersection will return you um, an iterator, a discard iterator, which you can do uh, iterator difference between that return right. value and the beginning, and you can get the size of the set intersection, and then you can allocate only that storage. Now that's you know more computationally intensive because you're essentially going to do the set intersection twice, but it does save on storage, um, and that might be useful if you're doing things in parallel. Because then, if you're doing things in parallel on the GPU, the, the the additional cost of doing the computation twice may not be that important, but um, uh, conserving memory may be quite important. So that's a that's an interesting use case for it. I would suspect that there's probably some some use cases where um, I, I I have a feeling that somebody has said that they've used used discard iterator with a scan um, where they wanted to essentially do a reduction um, uh, like operation, but they didn't care about uh, the output. Um, I think something like that uh, I recall from the, from, from the past. Yeah, it's, we'll, we'll definitely add links in the show notes. I'll see if I can find the example from, from rapids that uses it. Um, yeah, in the wild, um, and perhaps perhaps we should write a paper proposing a a discard iterator for uh, for standard C plus plus, so that we can truly say that all of the thrust fancy iterators are available. I mean, um, but by, by we you mean the collective community at large. I completely agree. <laughs> um, we no, should... I, I I meant I meant you. I don't have time to write papers right now, yeah. but um, we, we should but, talk about some more C plus plus twenty three features that we're excited about. Yeah, let's just rattle off a couple. Um, well, there's MD span, 
So I, mean, I joined. That's actually not in size list. I don't think. I guess, no, because I, guess si- um, I just realized that that their list is was from March, um, and so they haven't included any of the stuff that we've added since then. Uh, specifically, see, the stuff from uh, from the uh, July uh, committee plenary where we voted in like sixty papers, but MD span is in, um, which I'm quite excited about because I joined the committee back in 2015 with the purpose of working on putting a multi-dimensional array type into the standard and uh now uh seven years later <laughs> success um and uh let's see what other things um yeah let's just do rapid fire i'm looking stood at the, expected stood expected yeah let's let's just do rapid fire so we'll just mention things and then maybe in a future episode we'll uh we'll maybe we'll bring on guests or we'll just talk about these in detail but yeah stood expected super exciting um, and I'm looking now sort of at the bottom of the list of things that have been added to the compiler support. And this is the library side of things. We'll look at language in a sec. Um, the range fold algorithms. Can you name the four fold algorithms that got added? C++ 23? I was, I was going to bring those up. Um, I can't name them. Aren't they, all, aren't they all just spellings of fold? There's fold bluff. There's... Yep, that's correct. One out of four. I actually got, I did a whole talk and mentioned them and got one of the names wrong. I, so you're off I the did, hook for messing up. I gave a whole talk yeah, but and I, still I messed did, it up. I did share the meetings where these things were <laughs> voted in, but that, 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 that's the problem is that the names changed so many times. I, I honestly couldn't tell you what the final names were. Yeah, so fold, so it's uh, fold left is the first one. Uh, fold right is the second one. Yeah. Fold left first is the third one. And the one that I got wrong, you might be thinking, I named it fold right first that is wrong scratch that from ever having heard it in my talk it's fold right last which i don't know how i feel about that i kind of like the first first um but anyways and these are the equivalents if you're a haskell programmer of fold l fold l1 fold r and fold r1 the difference being is that the ones without the underscore first and underscore last suffix uh they don't take initial values whereas the ones that are just called fold left and fold right, they do take initial values. And the difference that that impacts the algorithms in that the ones that um, don't take initial values, the underscore first and underscore last version, have to return an optional, which means because if you're given an empty range, what do you return? Uh, You can't return anything because you don't know what to return. You don't even have a single element and you don't have an initial value uh, that you can return. Therefore, you return an optional and if you're given a, an empty sequence, you're going to just get back the, the stood colon colon null opt thing. Yeah. Um, standard, where did I read this one? It was uh, standard library modules, not something that uh, is going to super affect the way we write a line of code, but is very important. Um, well, I, what do you mean? I mean, it, it what? <laughs> It's, it's modularizing the standard library, correct? Yes, but it's going to change the way that everybody includes the standard library. Yeah, in particular, cons- they want so it consumes include- code, but like not. Yeah. I mean, it it changes the way you write your import or include you, statements. You, but you will, you will, uh, buddy, 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 buddy. What you? It's modules lazily load on all the major implementations, so it. it there is some cost dependent on the size of the module, but in comparison to headers, which are textual, the cost is like trivial, and that's why we have one big std module. And what that that's means—that's why, why I didn't—I didn't mention anything about cost. I just said it won't 
technically affect the way you write code. It drastically will affect the way that you write code because you'll no longer have to. You'll no longer have to think about what header am I including, what standard library header am I including. You'll just import std, and you'll have all of them. And the the way it works, it's not a text. The modules aren't textual. It's this. Um, you know, this internal compiler representation that has a fast index of the things. So you'll, you'll only pay for what things you use. Only those things will really have to be loaded from the module and they can be looked up quickly. I didn't know that. You should, you should have read the paper or uh, uh, listened to my talk, uh, talks on modules. So this, this, mean, this means import stood importing the entire standard library as a module is faster than including only the headers that you need. And so that means that in the future, you will not think about what headers a part of the standard library is in. You will simply import the entire standard library. And that, that changes how you write code. You'll no longer think about, you know, which header is this thing in or which header is that thing in. You know, the, you know, oh, I forgot to add the numeric include because I included algorithms thinking that's where reduce is, but no, it's actually in this numeric header. You won't have to deal with that. I mean, in your defense, I had no idea that this was the implications of it. In my defense, it still doesn't affect the way you write code. It affects the way that it affects it means you don't have to think about where code lives and you don't have to go include hash include angle header from this and remember oh yeah numeric's in algorithm there or, are uh, there are features that people don't use today because they are in a header with a bunch of other things and they don't want to pay the cost of including the header and in the future world of a modular standard library maybe instead of writing you know some something on your own because you don't want to pay this cost of including the entire standard library, you'll just import std and use that thing. That's a, that is a strong argument. Um, I mean, I would, I, if we were in a debate mode here, I would still say you could still write the exact same code you were writing before now. So in that sense, it's not changing it. But from that pragmatic point of view of, yes, if you were not including a certain header because of the cost of it, now potentially and that and that is actually like i'm sure that is the case for some people out in the wild that they're not including this because hurts compile time too much like we've all seen lightning talks or talks that show hey look looks what happened look what happens when i include this single header and yeah boom you know it, it explodes compile time all right we'll leave it there folks yeah stay tuned this is probably episode 91 that you're finishing listening to episode 92 if all things go according to plan we'll have kate gregory on and then maybe we'll bring barry on after that if he wants to come on thanks for listening lita let us know either on reddit or on twitter or on our github if uh we missed your favorite library or language feature and you want to talk you want us to talk about it on a future episode thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed and have a great day